Hello, and welcome to Me Reading Shit, me, being Jack Warder. Today we're going to read Chapter 6 of H.G. Wells' The Time Machine. Without further ado, let's get right on into it. A queer thing I soon discovered about my little hosts, and that was their lack of interest. They would come to me with eager cries of astonishment, like children, but like children they would soon stop examining me and wander away for some other toy. The dinner and my conversational beginnings ended. I noted for the first time that almost all those surrounded me at first were gone. It is odd, too, how speedily I came to disregard these little people. I went through the portal into the sunlit world again as soon as my hunger was satisfied. I was continually meeting more and more of these men of the future, who would follow me a little distance, chatter and laugh about me, and, having smiled and gesticulated in a friendly way, leave me again to my own devices. The calm of the evening was upon the world as I emerged from the great hall. The scene was lit by a warm glow of the setting sun. At first, were very confusing. Everything was so entirely different from the world I had known, even the flowers. The giant build-up I had left situated on the slope of the broad river valley, but the Thames had shifted, perhaps a mile from its present position. I resolved to mount the summit of a crest, perhaps a mile and a half away, from which I could get a wider view of this our planet in the year 802,701 AD. For that, I should explain, was the date the little dials of my machine had recorded. As I walked, I was watching for every impression that could ha possibly help me explain the condition of ruinous splendor in which I found the world, for ruinous it was. A little way up the hill, for instance, was a great heap of granite bound together by masses of aluminum, a vast labyrinth of precipitous wall and crumpled heaps, amidst which were thick heaps of very beautiful pagoda-like plants, nettles possibly, but wonderfully tinted with brown about the leaves and incapable of stinging. It was evidently the derelict remains of some vast structure to what end built I could not determine. It was here that I was destined at a later date to have a very strange experience, the first intimidation of still stranger discoveries. But of that, I will speak of it in its proper place. Looking round with a sudden thought from Terrace on which I rested for a while, I realized that there was no small houses to be seen. Apparently the single house and possibly even the household had vanished. Here and there among the greenery were palace-like buildings, but the house and the cottage, which formed such characteristic features of our own English landscape, had disappeared. Communism, said I to myself. And on the heels of the came the thought. I looked at the half-dozen little figures that were following me. Then, in a flash, I perceived that all had the same form of costume, the same soft, hairless visage, and the same girlish rotundity of limb. It may seem strange, perhaps, that I had not noticed this before, but everything was so strange. Now I saw a fact plainly enough, in costume and in all different instances of texture and bearing that now mark off the sexes from each other, these people of the future were alike, and the children seemed to my eyes to be the miniatures of their parents. I judged then that the children of the time were extremely precocious, physically at least, and I found afterwards abundant verification of my opinion. Seeing the ease and security in which these people were living, I felt that this close resemblance of the sexes was, after all, what one would expect, for the strength of a man and the softness of a woman, the institution of the family, and the differentiation of occupations are mere militant necessities of an age of physical force. Where population is balanced and abundant, much childbearing becomes an evil rather than a blessing to the state. Where violence comes but rarely and offspring are secure, there is less necessity, indeed, 
there is no necessity for an efficient family and the specialization of the sexes with reference to their children's needs disappears. We see some of the beginnings of this even in our own time, and in the future age it was complete. This, I must remind you, was my speculation at the time. Later, I was to appreciate how far it fell short of reality. While I was musing upon these things, my attention was attracted by a pretty little structure, like a well under a cupola. I thought in a transitory way of the oddness of wells still existing, then resumed the thread of my speculations. There were no large buildings towards the top of the hill, and as my walking powers were evidently miraculous, I was pre presently left alone for the first time. With a strange sense of freedom and adventure, I pushed on to the top of the crest. There I found the seat of yellow metal that I did not recognize corroded in places with a kind of pinkish rust and half smothered in soft moss. The armrest cast and filed in the resemblance of griffin's heads. I sat down on it and surveyed the broad view of our old world under the sunset of that long day. It was as sweet and fair a view as I could have ever seen. The sun had already gone down below the horizon and the west of fl was flaming gold touched with the horizontal bars of purple and crimson. Below was the Valley of the Thames, and the river lay like a band of burnished steel. I have already spoken of the great palaces dotted about among the variegated greenery, some in ruins and some still occupied. Here and there rose a white or silvery figure in the waste garden of the earth. Here and there came a sharp vertical line of some cupola or obelisk. There were no hedges, no signs of proprietary rights, no evidence of agriculture. The whole world had become a garden. So, watching, I began to put the interpretation upon the things I had seen, and as it shaped itself to me that evening, my interpretation was something in this way. Afterwards, I found I had only gotten half-truth, or only a glimpse of one facet of the truth. It seemed to me that I had happened upon humanity upon the wane. The ruddy sunset set me thinking of the sunset of mankind. For the first time, I began to realize an odd consequence of the social effort in which we are at present engaged. And yet, come to think of it, it is a logical consequence enough. Strength is the outcome of need. Security sets a premium on feebleness. The work ameliorating the conditions of life, a true civilizing process that makes life more and more secure, had gone steadily on to a climax. One triumph of a united humanity over nature had followed another. Things that are now mere dreams had become projects deliberately put in hand and carried forward. And the harvest was what I saw. After all, the sanitation and the agriculture of today are still in the rudimentary stage. The science of our time is attacked, but put a little department of the field of human disease, but even so, it still spreads its operations very steadily and persistently. Our agriculture and horticulture destroy a weed just here and there and cultivate a score of wholesome plants, leaving the great number to fight out a balance as they can. We improve our favorite plants and animals, and how few they are, gradually by selective breeding. Now a new and better peach, now a seedless grape, now a sweeter and larger flower. Now a more convenient breed of cattle. We improve them gradually because our ideals are vague and tentative, and our knowledge is very limited, because nature too is shy and slow in our clumsy hands. Someday all of this will be organized, and still better. There is a drift of a current in spite of the eddies. The whole world will be intelligent, educated, and cooperating. Things will move faster and faster towards the subjugation of nature. In the end, wisely and carefully, we shall readjust the balance of animal and vegetable life to suit our human needs. This adjustment, I say, must have been done, and done well, done indeed for all time, in the space of time across which the machines had leapt. The air was free from gnats, the earth from weeds or fungi, everywhere were fruits, sweet and delightful flowers. Brilliant butterflies flew hither and thither.
The ideal of preventative medicine was attained. Diseases had been stamped out. I saw no evidence of any contagious diseases during all my stay. Now, I should tell you later that even the process of putrefaction and decay had been profoundly affected by these changes. Social triumphs, too, had been affected. I saw mankind housed in splendid shelters, gloriously clothed, and as I yet found them engaged in no toil. There were no signs of struggle, neither social nor economical struggle. The shop, the advertisement, the traffic, all the commerce which constitutes the body of our world was gone. It was natural in the golden evening that I should jump to the idea of a social paradise. The difficulty of increasing population had been met, I guessed, and population had ceased to increase. But with this change in condition comes inevitably adaptions to the change. What, unless biological science is a mass of errors, is causing the human intelligence in vigor? Hardship and freedom, conditions under which the active strong and subtle survive, and weaker go to the wall. Conditions that put a premium upon the loyal alliance of capable men, upon self-restraint, patience, and decision. The institution of the family and the emotions that arise therein, the fierce jealousy, the tenderness of the offspring, parental self-devotion, all found their justification and support in the imminent dangers of the young. Now, where are these imminent dangers? There is a sentiment arising, and it will grow against conjugal jealousy, against fierce maternity, against passion of all sorts. Unnecessary things now, and things make us uncomfortable, savage survivals, discords of refined and a pleasant life. I thought of the physical slightness of the people and their lack of intelligence in those big, abundant ruins, and it strengthened my belief in a perfect conquest of nature. For after the battle comes quiet. Humanity had been strong, energetic, and intelligent, and used all the abundant vitality to alter the conditions under which it lived. Now came the reaction of the altered conditions. Under the new conditions of perfect comfort and security, that restless energy that with us is strength would become weakness. Even in our own time, certain tendencies and desires, once necessary to survival, are a constant source of failure. Physical courage, the love for battle, for instance, are no great help, may even be hindrances to civilized man. And in a state of physical balance and security, power, intellectual as well as physical, would be out of place. For countless years, I judged there had been no danger of war or solitary violence, no danger to the wild beasts, no wasting disease to require strength of constitu constitution, no need of toil. For such a life, what we could call the weak are as well equipped as the strong, are indeed no longer weak. Better equipped indeed they are, for the strong would be fretted by an energy for which there are no outlet. No doubt the exquisite beauty of the buildings I saw in the outcome of the last surgings of the now purposeless energy of mankind before it settled down into perfect harmony. The conditions under which it lived, the flourish of that triumph which began the last great peace. This has ever been the fate of energy and security. It takes to art into eroticism, and then comes languor and decay. Even this artistic impetus would at last die away, had almost died in the time I saw. To adorn themselves with flowers, to dance, to sing in the sunlight, so much was left of the artistic spirit and no more. Even that would fade in the end to contented inactivity. We are kept keen on the grindstone of pain and necessity, and it seemed to me here that the hateful grindstone had broken at last. As I stood there in the gathering dark, I thought in the simple explanation I had mastered the problem of the world mastered the whole secret of these delicious people. Possibly the checks they had devised for the increase of population had succeeded too well and their numbers had rather diminished than keep stationary. That would account for the abandoned ruins. Very simple was my explanation. 
and plausible enough as most wrong theories are.